Okay, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your intrepid host, uh, John Larson, and tonight we've assembled another great panel. First of all, to my left is the one and only Zilpha. Hi, Zilpha. Hello, John. Hey, everybody. Hello. And um, guest starring tonight, um, returning to Mormon Expression, is the one and only Richard Packham. Hi, Richard. Thanks for coming back. My, my pleasure entirely, John. Um, the pleasure is ours. Also um, returning in her triumphant glory is Megan. Hey, Megan. Hello. Welcome back. You you are Thank a you. treat to have on. Um, and the bulldog of Mormon expression, um, Amy. <laughs> hey, Amy. Hi, how are you? <laughs> is that, that's, that's said with love, you, you understand, right? I want to be the pit bull of Mormon expression. Okay, you got it. Thank you. All right. We, we have um, a, a wonderful podcast I just wanted to dive into. But first, I need to give out our disclaimer. Tonight, we will be talking about the LDS Temple, and we will be talking about the LDS Temple in all of its glory. If you are offended by such things, now is the time to press the stop button and go do something else. All right. For the rest of you, um, I... Um, you might point out, uh, John, that... that the intent of this podcast is in no way to offend or to mock or uh, ridicule. Uh, it's for informational purposes only. Absolutely. I, I think that the temple is a fascinating um, element of Mormonism, and, and we're going to be talking about the changes in the temple. So it's not necessarily even clear that what we're talking about would be um, prohibited under the... Um, prohibitions, but we'll leave that to the listener to decide. But I do think it's, it's, a, it's a central part of LDS worship service and of the moving from a child to adulthood in the Mormon faith. Um, and it takes a lot of people by shock because it's not in the LDS tradition to talk about it. And we'll get into some of this tonight, but there are fragments of previous ceremonies that are still left in the temple that have no explanation. And most LDS people are painfully unaware of the origins and the practices and why they're doing certain things. And you just kind of merrily go through the temple and wonder what it is you're doing. It's very ritualistic. So a lot of people just think, well, it's just part of the ritual for one reason or another, but it doesn't matter. It's just a ritual. Yes. So, um, I mean, let's, let's, um, start at the beginning. Of course, Joseph Smith began his religious career, um, when he discovered the golden plates and translated the Book of Mormon. And he quickly started introducing new ideas that separated him from the Christian world. And quickly the idea of the restoration was introduced. That the entire Christian world had gone away from the pure church. I think as Jesus Christ put it, um, in the first vision, they all their creeds were an abomination. Um, so they had not only gone astray, they had gone rather seriously astray. And Joseph Smith began introducing new ceremony and new practice. Not new, restoring. Restored. And 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 for the, the beginning, for most of the years, this wasn't really that drastic. Um, that they were very much in harmony with um, things people would have seen in other religions or in other restoration movements. Or mentioned in the New Testament, like the washing of feet. Yeah. But when we got to the temple ceremony, especially the temple as it was introduced in Nauvoo, which is the uh, forefather of the temple ceremony today, um, things 
became very different from all the other Protestant religions. And this temple um, service, this temple ceremony, became central to Mormonism. And that's why Mormons use today, as the symbol of their faith, the temple and the angel Moroni sitting atop the temple, because it is, it is, it is key and central, and some would argue more central than the cross or than Jesus. That's the um, genesis of the temple. Um, so, so we want to go through and talk about, um, the, the, the standard top 10, the top 10 changes to the temple that have happened over the years. Well, do you, do you... I, I think it's imp- important to point out that according to Joseph Smith in introducing these, he emphasized that these rituals, uh, uh, every part of the ritual was originally given to Father Adam in the Garden of Eden and, uh, that they had been uh, uh, available to the faithful followers of, of God all through the ages and each generation, each dispensation corrupted them and that's why they had to be restored. But they are the original ones given to Father Adam in the garden. Yes, that's a, that's, that's a very important point and central to the idea of the restoration because for, for Mormons, they, you know, we accept the Bible. Um, as far as it is translated correctly. And, and, you know, that's sort of what we say to the rest of the world. Internally, um, we accept some parts of the Bible. Other parts we talk about were, were messed with by the great and abominable church, that there were priests and pastors who went and, and, and corrupted the true religion. But there were elements that were from pure revelation that God spoke directly to his prophets. And Joseph didn't talk about revelation in an abstract sort of, this is the way I feel. I got a burning in my bosom. He talked about talking face to face with Paul and with Moses and, and with Moroni. Elijah. He, and, and when they talk about the translation process, they often talk about the very words, the wording, the grammar, um, even the letters appearing to them. And then if they didn't have the wording exactly right, they'd get a stupor of thought and not be able to move on. So Joseph Smith introduced a model of revelation that was more like watching TV than getting uh, an inspiration from a muse. Right. Um, and before we go into the changes, and while we're talking about the origin, it, it seems like it'd be important to mention that the temple ceremony, um, the endowment ceremony, is is really mas- masonically based. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that with each of the Oh, the with changes. each of the changes? Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's, with no further ado... Um, let's, let's jump in. And, and there, there have been many changes all over the years. And during the early days of the temple, um, they struggled to keep it even in sync. Like, um, there, you can read letters from the early part of the church going back and forth between the, the president in Salt Lake and the temple president in, um, in St. George where they, they argued back and forth about wording and all that. And, um, until we, we get to the, the, the recorded temple, it was completely acted out. So there would be local interpretation, local flair that would come in. But that being put aside, there were still a lot of top-down changes, and all of these are, are top-down changes. Some of them come from external pressures. The first one we're going to talk about is the Pledge of Obedience by the Women. Um, one of the biggest changes that came in recent time came in 1990, the, the spring of 1990, and it was picked up nationally. The national press covered it. Um, and there were, there were many key changes made. And one of the changes that was made is, um, as you go through the temple, you're going through these services of covenants. 
where um, God gives you a new set of rules to obey and the new covenant to obey those those rules or those commandments. And for this one, you might want to mention that men and women are segregated in the same room, but women on the left, men on the right. Correct. And um, the men pledge obedience to God. This is after the um, after Eve takes the apple and the, they're 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 thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Um, men pledge obedience to God. And women would pledge obedience to their man, or they would pledge obedience to their husband. Now, in 1990, a, a, a subtle change, but very key, was made, which is the women then pledged obedience to their husband, the language still left in, as he obeys the father. Um, so, so, so it, before, it seemed to be a carte blanche um, requirement of obedience specifically to the men. Isn't the word hearken used? As he hearkens? Hearken unto his, unto I think the counsel of your husband as he hearkens unto, isn't that? Yeah, and the key word there is counsel. In the church, counsel um, means instruction, like an order. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of women try to find wriggle room still, and that hearken makes them feel a little better because you can say, well, I'm hearkening, but that doesn't mean I'm going to actually do it. <laughs> So let me just clarify something real quick. I was listening carefully. First, there was a pledge of obedience to the husband, and now there's a pledge of hearkening to the husband as he hearkens unto the Lord. Is that correct? Or was it was it always hearken, but they added, as he hearkens un, unto the Lord? Richard, do you know? Well, I'm trying to find it in, my, in the script that I have in front of me. Um, as I recall... Originally, it was that uh, the the man would pledge, took an oath to obey God, the father, and the wife took a pledge to obey the husband. Uh, so now her, it's, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It was it. She she she. Her pledge was to obey her husband. So the as female, he obeys the Lord, as he obeys the Lord. Now so she never actually had to obey. Her obedience was through her husband. That's then. right. She did not take a pledge to obey God. She took a pledge to obey uh, her husband. Now, Which is kind of like her God if she's obeying properly. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's what's key here. Before um, the the change is very significant, but the ch- what didn't change here is also significant, which is the women do not have access to God in the temple. Um, and, and this, this comes out later in the temple ceremony when a woman wants to go through the veil. Um, you know, the ceremony takes you to the temple, takes you to the veil. And there's, and when you do your, your, um, endowment in conjunction with your, your wedding, the, the man gets ceremonially taken through the veil by God and the woman gets ceremonially taken through the veil by her husband. So, well, yeah, except that her husband then r- represents God. Yes. The, 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 okay. I've got I've got the uh, law of obedience in front of me now. You want me to read that? Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> the women originally. This is in the pre nineteen ninety version. Uh, uh, God says, "Each of you bring your right arm to the square. You and each of you solemnly covenant and promise before God, angels, and these witnesses at this altar that you will each observe and keep the law of your husband." Whoa. And wow. abide by his counsel in righteousness. 
each of you bow your head and say yes. Uh, the change that was made in 1990 leads, uh, brings it to read that you will each observe and keep the law of the Lord and hearken to the counsel of your husband. As he each hearkens to the As Lord. he hearkens to the counsel of the Father. And, and remember, I... I, I'm not kidding on this point. In in LDS language, counsel means commandment. Yes. So I think outsiders might hear that and say, "Oh, you know, a counselor gives you advice." It's not advice. Counsel is is what you're told to do. Richard, can I ask you a question? Sure. Re- before that 1990 change, and the, the the female panelists all just kind of took a step back and swallowed real hard after you read that. Yeah. Um, what was your ex- experience with your, as a male-female relationship, how did that manifest itself in just day-to-day relationships as you, in your opinion or in your observation? What did, did much change, do you think, as far as? Well, I don't, I don't think that in, uh, in a lot of couples, things changed all that much. Um, uh, my father may well have felt that he was the one that gave counsel and mother was to obey him. That is not the way it really worked. Uh, <laughs> I, and, uh, and, uh, in my eight year marriage, um, I never, tried to tell my wife uh you know i'm i'm the priesthood holder and this is what you are to do uh it was always in practice a a uh, mutual thing you know i mean it in in real life it didn't mean all that much i'm reminded of a of a of an old german couple that i knew they were not mormon an old german couple that i knew in germany uh, he was a veteran of the, of the Second World War. And, uh, he, uh, uh, the, the, the wife told me once, she says, in presence of her daughter, she said, well, you know, your father thinks that he's the one that gives all the orders around this house, but you let me deal with him. I'll get him to do what I want him to do. <laughs> so that the men think that they are the ones in command. Uh, but a smart woman knows how to get around that. And that even goes for a smart Mormon woman. I think I that's th- true. But I also think that theologically the women would absorb this and would, and would take on a second class role. I think we all knew people and probably know them in the church today of women that are extremely deferential to their husband, almost to the point of being a doormat. Right, right. And, and I agree with you there. And I do know of marriages where the husband was in command and he asserted his authority and the wife obeyed. Yeah, I, I know of couples like that. Well, I think my, my mom took this change to the bank because, you know, she'll, she'll often accuse my dad of not being, uh, not hearkening to the Lord so she doesn't have to listen to him. <laughs> wow, I like that loophole. That's good, yeah. Go All right. Uh, well, I, just briefly, I know in my family, um, my no one ever, my dad never came right out and said, I'm the priesthood holder, you will obey me. But things very similar to that would come out. Um, 
when there were big decisions that were being made. And even still to this day, my mom's not a doormat by any means, and they are still equals. However, I think almost out of tradition and maybe in honor of this covenant, she will say things that, you know, well, I'm going to defer to your father for this or, or your father's going to, will be making those kinds of decisions or I wouldn't do something like that until I spoke with your father. And I don't know any other woman or any other marriage where that is so central to the relationship as it is in Mormonism. Right. And I, another, another interesting aspect was since we're speaking of women and their role in the temple, I, I find, find it rather ironic that women are required to wear the robes of the holy priesthood during the endowment. And yet they are not allowed to exercise the priesthood. Well, and, what is that about? What, and they're also required to veil their, their faces. Well, there are yes. other places in the temple where women do do some things with their... Yeah, the the only place I right, know during, of where... During the washing and anointing. During of, the washing and anointing, uh, yeah. Right. There, there are female officiators, right. Well, okay. I think it's also important to point out, though, that it's not just the relationship between husband and wife. When you hear that language in the temple, it's actually just supporting everything that you've learned as a woman throughout your your lifespan in the church, which is that men preside, men have the authority, and you listen to them. So you're seeing yourself in relationship to your husband, yes, and you're hearkening to him, but you're also seeing, you know, there's Adam, there's Eve, there's man, there's woman, and this is the way the the order goes. I mean, it's like the old language when they would anoint the men as kings and priests to God, and the wives as queens and priestesses to their husbands. Right. And, and we tend to you know, we romantically talk about the, the Mormon wedding ceremony where the man and the woman sort of as equals sit across the, or, or kneel across the altar at each other and look at each other's eyes and hold each other's hand. People forget to mention that going through the endowment is part and parcel to the marriage ceremony. So when you take those two together, and, you know, like when my parents were married in the 60s, they literally had to do them back to back. Now they let it be, what, a week but but you you have to do the endowment in association with your wedding in which like we talked about before the man pulls the woman through the veil so if you if you look at that ceremonially the woman goes through this temple ceremony where she pledges obedience to her husband where her husband is her salvation by acting instead of god and then then the marriage happens so even if you're a feisty woman you're going to be told subtly at the very beginning that hey you need to obey the men. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move forward to um, number nine. Um, this was a really key change in the practice of the temple, and I believe it took place in around 1954, 1955, with the advent of the temple in Switzerland. Of course, this is post-war period. Um, Europe is being rebuilt, and they're looking for a central place. None of the congregations, you know, in France or in, in Germany or, or Italy or anywhere else had enough of a population to really support a temple, so they decided to go for Switzerland. And the problem they, they faced is that the temple ceremony is sort of this passion play in which characters play the part of God and the devil and Adam and Eve. And when you start bringing in people from all these different countries who speak all these different languages, you have a real problem. Um, and, and luckily, according to um, Devery Anderson's book um, on the development of the temple practice, uh, which we highly recommend, we have all the letters going back and forth on this, but they decided to introduce a film. 
Um, so they would film the, the actors playing it. The, 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 the benefit of that is they could do several audio tracks in different languages. Um, you know, you could have a French version and a German version. And, and, and even today in the temple, you can go to any temple, really, and you can say, I speak German. And they will hand you this little headset. And even though in the, in the room it might be played in English or in Japanese or wherever you're at, you can listen to it in, in your own language and it all syncs up. There's an interesting story I'd like to re- relate uh, from Rowney Higley. Rowney uh, worked in the church office building. She's a native Finn, and she worked as a translator uh, when they were doing these uh, scripts in other languages. Her job was to translate the endowment ceremony into Finnish. And she was having, uh, at this time, she was a faithful Mormon, of course. She was having difficulties in understanding exactly what some of the wording meant. And so she went to the apostle, and I forget which one it was, who was in charge of all of these translations and said, please explain to me what this means so that I can translate it into Finnish so that it makes sense. And he said to her, I haven't the slightest idea what it means. Just do the best you can. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I've been to the temple in different languages, and th- there were parts of that where they had to make decisions, and no one's really clear on, on those things. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that happens. Um, I, I, I actually um, talked to the guy who was, was one of the translators of the, of the Laotian one, and they were very strict about it. They made them do it in the temple and blah, 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 blah. But, of course, the brethren had no idea about the Laotian language or anything about it. Um, so, so it did solve some problems, but introduced other problems. The biggest thing of the change is um, it really did two things. It gave complete central control over the temple ceremony. So there was no local flair. Now, they still do the live session in only two temples, in the Salt Lake Temple and in the um, Manti Temple. Every other temple has been converted now to the film. I, I believe the St. George has been converted now. That's what I've heard. Um, I, I recall... I recall after I had left the church in the late 50s, uh, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the Oakland Temple was open for visitors before it was dedicated. And that was when I first learned that they were going to be showing movies in the temple. <laughs> and I, I remember, and the screens were right there at, at the time. And I remember laughing out loud. I mean, if if ever I needed proof that the church was in apostasy, this is it. They're showing movies as part of the most sacred ceremony, uh, religious ceremony. Well, well, the movie in and of itself isn't such a bad thing. Well, well you've seen the, the modern movies. The first yeah, the movies um, had no music whatsoever. No, they, they had no bed music at all. And um, for a while, they played a portion of Disney's Fantasia in in, in the movie for the um, creation scene. For or, the creation scene, I think they're still playing it, aren't they? Um, not the, Fantasia. Not no. after the 1990 changes, and then Disney Disney revoked their their copyright permission. Oh, I had heard I had heard the opposite that D- Disney was going to revoke it, and the church talked them into giving them a. a, a Forever license to use it. Um, well, but the, I may be mistaken. The, the, I haven't been in a temple for a few years. <laughs> the, 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 the ones that are, that are, the two films that are in play right now, 
Um, the one has a score by Lex D'Alzevedo, and I'm not sure who, who did the other one, but, but they are, they're scored differently than the Disney stuff. It's yeah. not there anymore. And they filmed their own, um, Star Trek voyage through the planets in both of them. That, interestingly enough, they're, they're slightly different. Um, and one sort of has this, um, um, like, um, Baroque choir singing, oh, in the, in the background as you, oh, you float through the planets and stuff. Um, but the, the big change that came as we've sort of hinted at is prior to that, the temples had these rooms that you moved into and some of them had very beautiful murals. So they had the garden room representing the Garden of Eden. And then as Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, you'd go into the, the celestial room, which represented the lone and dreary world and it had desert paint, painted on and animals eating other animals. And then you would, you would advance through these rooms until in the end you, you, you entered into the celestial kingdom. Now what you do is you sit in these theater, literally these movie theater style seats and, um, the lights keep going up. And I, I, I've said this before, but I'm no dummy, but I never realized, um, I didn't go through the, a live session in Salt Lake until after I'd been to the temple for years. I never realized that the lights going up represented moving from one kingdom to the other. Um, now it's apparent to me, but I think for a lot of individuals in, going through the temple, that's not necessarily clear that when they click more lights on, you're, you're, you've gone from the, the, the telestial to the no, terrestrial. I didn't even notice the change of lights, let alone what it meant. <laughs> I thought they were trying to wake people up. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, to see who's sleeping. Um, uh, when I was uh, in Nauvoo, just before the Nauvoo Temple uh, was dedicated, or was finished. We had a, a chance to talk to someone at the visitor's center about the temple. Uh, I asked him uh, uh, what, if it was going to be like the endowment as it was in Nauvoo. And he said, no. He said, uh, and it'll be a film, but they will move from room to room. <laughs> as though it was going to be, you know, really... Original. That was actually one of my questions. Um, James C. Christensen painted the mural in the garden room. And I know this because I was working for him at BYU during the time that he was doing this. And he was in joking about how in the Nauvoo temple. Oh, okay. And he was joking about how he had painted little cigarettes in the mouths of some of the mice and squirrels and things that were in the garden room. And he had just kind of done it as a joke for a couple, I don't know, maybe a day or something like that. And needless to say, not a lot of his students thought that it was funny to listen to, but I thought it was hilarious because I was an inactive member at the time. <laughs> so that was two questions. What are they doing with the rooms that are no longer being in use for the walking, you know, temples that had the live sessions. Where, what are those rooms being used for now? And then the second part to that question, but Richard, you answered it was if there's rooms that are specifically painted in the Nauvoo temple for that purpose, are there live sessions? But you just stated that they have movies in each of those rooms. So Amy, you're going to make well, me I'm, cry. And I, and, and I don't know. I, I unfortunately I know. The know. They, they gutted them. They gutted them? How can you gut the temple? <laughs> well, yeah, if you go to the Logan Temple today, um, they replaced them all with the, the multiplex. Um, so the way the temples are set up now is the, the celestial room is in the middle, and then there's these four, or um, in the case of the Ogden and Provo, there's six rooms that are around 
um, that, that all face into the middle. And then when you're done, you get up and then you walk in and you walk, you pass through the veil. Some of the other temples like San Diego, you, you, you move at the very end when you're ready to go through the veil, they have this veil going through room. So you'll stay in for all the film and all the ceremony. And then you move to this room for the last part of the, of the ceremony. But yeah, unfortunately those old beautiful temples were, um, were, were gutted. Now there, there might be some, I, I don't know, like if the Los Angeles temple still has some of its murals or not, that they, they might be there. Wow. That's really sad. Okay. Um, now we're going to go way back in time, um, to the earliest temple ceremony. Um, uh, there, there, there is the washing and anointing, um, that is part of the, the, the temple ceremony. Um, in the, in the earliest temple ceremony in Nauvoo, um, you would go and do a washing ceremony and then you would remove all of your clothing and then you would stand in this wash tub and then the individuals who were taking you through the temple would wash you with water perfumed with whiskey and, um, whatever else they, they wanted to put in it. But you would actually, um, um, completely disrobe and then you would be washed, um, literally washed. Now, now this was the frontier time. So, um, you know, that might be a good thing, <laughs> but, um, that was abandoned sometime in the 19th century. And for the modern cer- ceremony, well, not quite, not, not quite. When, when was still, it abandoned? They were still doing washings, uh, complete washings in, uh, Salt Lake. Uh, in 1906. Oh, so that late. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and, and th- you'll find a lot of references to this because it was sens- sensationalist. If you get old anti-Mormon books, um they usually have a uh, you know, a woodcut of some it's always a female being <laughs> being um bathed. Now, it 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 was segregated by the sexes. So, it wasn't like dirty old men washing dirty young girls. It was um dirty girls washing dirty girls. Well, I saw reference to, and I don't know if this was a temple one, but I saw a reference to John D. Lee being washed um, in baking soda and water and then in distilled alcohol by his wives. And they said it was though it was preparation for burial or something. Yeah, you, you're, you're now referring to the second anointing, which is, um, oh. which is outside of the, we, we, we do need to, to devote a podcast to it, but we're, we're, that, that one's not in here. And there is a, there is a ceremonial washing. Um, like you say, that the in, that is ceremonial of the the wives anointing their husband's body for burial because he will rise up first in the first resurrection. Then the the husband will call the wives by name, which is why in the temple ceremony the husband knows the name of the wife, but the wife does not know the name of the husband because it's the husband's role acting in the place of God to rise up his wives. When John says the name, he means the new name you're given in the temple. Yes. Okay, number seven, um, the garment. Um, in, in the earliest days of the church, they referred to these as your temple robes. Um, and as a matter of fact, there's a, there's an early veiled reference to this in the, in the, um, recounting of the martyrdom where they talk about, um, Willard Richards, um, not, not receiving a mark in his robe. Um, he was wearing his garment at the time, and Joseph Smith and Hiram, unfortunately, were not. Maybe they would have been spared. <laughs> um, the early temple garments were a hideously large, an uncomfortable thing. It had a collar. It went um, down to the, um, it went down to the ankles and to the wrists. Um, and it, didn't it have like ties all the way up the front? It had ties up, up the, the front, tail. and that's, it had that, no crotch. That garment, but. 
that that's a correct uh, uh, description of the garment. But that's the garment that you had to wear in the temple during when you were doing endowments uh, in the 1950s when I was still going. To the oh, temple. like you? Uh, what? Like? Are, yeah. Oh, so you would put it on under your like white your so, white clothes. So for a long time, like Richard you didn't saying, just wear that into the endowment, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm sorry, I've I've misled you. No, the, you when, whenever whenever you're doing endowments in the temple for the dead or getting your own endowment, you're supposed to be wearing garment, the the temple garment underneath your clothing, right? Well, you always your wear your, yeah, you yes. always wear your underwear. Right, right, right. But, uh, in the 1950s, when you went to the temple, you had to wear a special temple garment, which is the old fashioned garment that went down to the wrists and the ankles and with a little collar and the four ties in front. Wow. And so you'd take off your regular garment underwear and put that's on the. That's right. Big, huge That's right. temple underwear. Right, okay. you took off. You took off your regular underwear. Uh, you put you put on the the uh, shield, and you walked to the washing and anointing booth, where you would take off the shield. They would wash you and anoint you, and uh, then um, you would hand them your temple garment, and that was the garment that they put on you. Right. Oh, oh, wow. So it was a compromise. As The, the garment over the court history of the church has changed many, many, many times. And I dare say will continue to change many, many times. It's like the 14th article of faith. Um, but, but the compromise with the old timers who didn't want to see it change at all was that the old garment was preserved in the temple. And we talk about ties. Like these were the, the ties that they made old fashioned by rolling up um, fabric and sewing it together so that they were thick and bulky. And they were gappy, and like I said, that they 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 had no crotch in the in the garment. It, it was just, and it would have been made of of you know like it, it's not like they had satin wool? or anything. It would have been made of or, wool, you know. So so well, well, no, not not the one that I wore in the fifties. Well, it was made of a nice material, uh, you know, cotton, I think. Or linen. I'm, I'm thinking more uh, about like nineteen or eighteen seventy, you know. Okay, yeah, you're talking about the old garment that everybody had to wear every day. Right. So, so Richard, right. when you when you went through, you had to you couldn't just go do an endowment session. Right. You That's, had to so go that was do the another, washing. One of the points that I wanted to bring up is that when you went to the endowment, when you went to the temple to do endowments for the dead, you went through the whole thing, starting with the washing and the anointing. Huh. Oh my goodness. And so it was a, it was an all, you know, it was, it took half a day to, to do an endowment for a deceased person. You also had to do an, a complete endowment if you were just going to the temple to, uh, witness a, a sealing ceremony. Yeah, that's right. They would all go through, um, together, um, and, and, and go through. Which the- is another change, which is another change in practice uh, nowadays you can wear your street clothes into the temple if you just want to witness a ceiling but in those days you had to go through the whole endowment correct so so today the garment um um for women is is barely a sleeve um like for, a cap for, for, sleeve right? it's like a cap sleeve it goes down you could you can show pretty good cleavage as a woman while wearing mm, the garment depends the, on your boobs yeah the, i was gonna say you'd have to have pretty decent cleavage yeah. to begin with so there, there are um, there are two pieces 
Um, they're in all sorts of modern fabric. They're supposed to go down and cover your knee. Kneecap. Um, because the, the garment has four marks on them. Now, when we, we say mark, I, I think I brought this up before. In the early days of the temple, you would go in with um, garments that had no markings on it. And as part of the ceremony, they would cut the um the garment they would they would cut the square and the compass into your breasts they'd cut the the mark above your um your your belly button and then they would cut the 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 bowing knee into your knee into the fabric into not the, into not in, into your into body the, into the into the fabric of the of the garment and each of these had sig- significance and then, and then you'd go home and then you'd sew them up um so uh, when when I was still wearing garments in the 1950s, uh, the everyday regulation garments still had markings cut all the way through and and then bound like a buttonhole. Really? Nowadays, they're just uh, a little bit of embroidery. Right. Very very tiny. Huh. The cuttings that were done in the temple at that time. What did they use? A pair of holy scissors? A sacrificial sword? I, I mean, think a, a dagger. Um, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, in Neither do I. I don't know the answer. In the early days of the temple, there, there are still some mysteries we don't know about the temple. Um, around about the turn of the century, and in the, the, the Salt Lake Temple was being refurbished. And a photographer, a Gentile photographer, snuck in and took a bunch of pictures of the temple. Um, the, and they were, they were published. And the, the church quickly responded by taking its own set of pictures. And then I think Talmadge wrote a book in which that they, they were, they were published. So that's when the, the old black and white pictures of the, of the Salt Lake Temple come from that incident. Is that when the spittoon was in the, yeah, you can see spittoon, Holy of Holies or whatever? Spittoons all over in the temple. <laughs> but there's one picture. No, no, in, it wasn't in the Holy of, it was in the, the, uh, uh, Quorum of the Twelve Council Room. Right, right. Oh, okay. But there's one, there's one particular picture that shows a doorway to the temple, and there is a sword in a sheath there that's sort of mounted to the wall. Now, um, in, in Masonic sem- ceremonies, the guy who guards the door is called a tiler, and he would have a ceremonial sword. So it might be that they were tilering the room in Masonic fashion, but it also might be that the sword was used ceremonially. The, for example, the, the, the knee mark is very significant of the cut. Um, which is that every knee shall bow um, to confess that God is, is, is Lord, or every knee shall be made to bow. That Christ is Lord. So, so you either bow or you will, be, you will be forced to bow. You'll be cut asunder. But, well, that's the significance of the mark. And these cuts were made at what point in the endowment ceremony? When you received your garment after the washing and anointing? When would those cuts have been made? I don't know the answer to that. I believe they were made. I believe they were made. Um, follow. I, I believe they were made in conjunction with the washing and anointing. Okay. Um, and but I'd have to look that up. I'm sure somebody will correct us if we're wrong. All right. Um. So so that's that's the 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 garment and the garment today. And Mormons do not think garments are magic. By the way. No, they more more well. That they're, they're, I'm not so sure about that. I never, I never thought they were magic. My parents never talked as if they were magic. The 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 problem with magic is it's so associated with like douchebags like Chris Angel and stuff like that. The 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 what probably an anthropologist would refer to them as a talisman. They're ta- that so so they're 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 an item that's sort of imbued with power in and of itself. That's that's why it's you people can say they're they're magic because Mormons believe that their 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 garments go through this special ceremony um and then they 
they are a protection in and of themselves. Not that God grants them protection because they're wearing garments, but that the garment itself is a protection. And Mormons continue yeah. to tell stories about being safe from car accident and bullets and stuff. The wording that is that is used when the garment is placed on you in the washing and anointing is that inasmuch as you are faithful, this garment will be a protection to you uh, and protect you from evil and harm until your days are completed here on the earth or something to that effect. So it is meant to be a protection. Hmm. Which and there's also why people would sometimes leave it on to shower or even on a wrist or even on an ankle is because they believe that it allowed them that protection that wouldn't be there otherwise. I would never say Mormons believe they're magic, but like John said, I, they definitely believe they have some kind of supernatural powers of protection. Hmm. Right. And, and remember, it's, it's, it's something like... very physical because mm-hmm. um, one of my earliest memories is my watching my mother cut the marks out of her garments and then burned them. And and then she would tell me never to talk about that. And then she cut up what was left and used them as rags. Right. So you, here was something that was so sacred and now she's scrubbing toilets with them. Right. But but she had to, it was the it symbols was, that made them holy. It was the marks that yes. made them holy. But it was a physical thing. Mm-hmm. There's, there's an apocryphal story from the missionaries that they always tell in every mission of cutting the marks out and then throwing out the shirt and then walking down the street and having some like street guy wearing the garment with his nipples <laughs> sticking out the two holes. That's a favorite story of, of, of missionaries. All right. Um, let's move uh, upward and onward. Um, number six, um, the five points of fellowship. Um, we've talked about the veil. This was another change that came in 1990. Of course, the five points of fellowship is very Masonic. You can go Google masonry and five points of fellowship and read all about it. But what happened when you went up to the veil to converse with the Lord through the veil in, sim- in the sim- symbolism of passing from this world to the next world and into your the Lord celestial glory was acted out by a temple worker. There would be a temple worker on the other side of the veil and you would embrace him in these five points of fellowship, which were cheek to cheek, breast to breast, um, knee to knee. What, what, toe to toe. What, 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 well, what, no, it was in. Uh, <laughs> Am I thinking of the foot, Watusi? I, 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 I get them confused. Foot to foot, knee to knee, uh, uh, breast to breast, arm to back, and mouth to ear. And so you would you would literally be be through this this thin curtain, and that would had holes in it. You would literally be embracing this fella and pushing your body right up. Right up against it. And put well, your he mouth. Would be embracing you. Yeah. Put your mouth by his ear, or his his mouth by your ear. Right. His hand on your back. And they still come kind of close to to doing it today. You will still um, put your your arms on shoulder, but you're you're a little bit more distanced. Now, f- for the sisters, um, they 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 will do this interaction with a male behind the 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 veil. Really. Yeah. You don't remember Well, that. I never so, had to do that. I sounded so scared just then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. Well, you would. You, would, you, you, were, you were talking to God through the veil. Right. That's right. And, I, and I that forgot was, that was a that man was on the other and, side. But, but you would put your hand through. You would be holding hands in one of the grips. And you would put your hand through the veil and put it on his shoulder. Yes, and he would and put, put his, his hand, hand on, on my on shoulder. On your shoulder. That, that still right. happens today. That's, yeah. That's the ni- post-1990 version. 
Right. Right. So before it was much more intimate. Yes. Wow. Yeah, you'd get a little hug. <laughs> before you went through. I mean, imagine, imagine knee to knee, knee to knee, breast to breast, breast to breast, hand to back, mouth to ear. Wow, you'd never get away with that at a Mormon dance. Pretty close. No, yeah. At a Mormon dance, no, that would not be allowed. Yeah, no Book of Mormon (laughs) distance there. Well, at a Mormon dance, you're not dancing with God. (laughs) Oh, that's true. Now, what you should be. Now, this gives us a chance to talk a little bit more about the 1990 changes. Um, uh, the, 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 what the books talk about is that the, the church hired a PR firm prior to the 1990 changes that, um, that there had been falling off attendance at the temple and they, they sort of pulled the church members to say, what, what do you like and not like about the temple? And so they took out some of these elements that were, um, more um masonic that were more creepy um and and sort of made it um, more banal for for people to go through and this is one of those elements where we see that the church really started distinct distancing itself from the the masonic elements because there's no way you can look at the five points of fellowship and not full on see the masonic origin of it well actually the the penalties are also almost identical to the penalties of masonic yeah the penalties and grips which we'll get to in a minute yeah there there are definitely other masonic elements but this is one of them that they jettisoned okay number 5 and probably my favorite one on the list um i i am sad i went through the temple for the first time in um 1992 so i am um, i never got to to witness this but there was a character um in the temple um that they always just called the preacher. Um, and the preacher wore a, um, a traditional black collar, you know, with a little white, um, um, I don't know what the, what do they call that? Just <laughs> clerical a, a, collar. Yeah, just a clerical collar. And yeah. the, the, the preacher, um, was presented as sort of this buffoonish character who was a hireling of Satan. Um, and the preacher, um, in, uh, and I, I think the, the version pr- right prior to the 1990 version, they had eliminated the hymn. But in the pre, in the early 1960 version, he would actually lead the entire congregation in a hymn. Now, and it was always a Protestant hymn, a kind of a revival hymn, you know, like uh, bringing in the sheaves mm-hmm. or uh, shall we gather by the river. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I've, I've actually, I, I one time went on a quest to try to find out what this hymn was. And the most common reference that I can find is bringing in the sheath. That seemed to be the most common one, although it seems like they changed it up. Although I have met two or three people who claim that people would sing um, different songs at that time. Like it would be just a jumbled mass of music, sort of like in Harry Potter singing the Hogwarts theme. You just pick whatever (laughs) song you wanted. But that, oh, I never experienced that. That, 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 interesting. that. that might be apocryphal because generally it, it was like bringing in the sheets. It might have been that they just only like three of them knew the words and everybody else was like, uh, bring through the, yep, uh, the water, whatever. But I was surprised. I was surprised going through the temple the first time in the 19, 1952. It seemed like everybody in the congregation knew this hymn. That I had never heard before because it's not one we sang in the Mormon church. Right. But everybody sitting there in the temple seemed to know it. Yep. Uh, and yet, uh, 
at visiting other temples, there would be other hymns, different hymns. Did the did the preacher mention anything about about Satan having dark skin? Not I, that I just I recall. found a reference to that on the um, internet, and I don't know what to make of it. No, I, I I've seen an early picture of the. Um, um, uh, and uh, the book's sitting here somewhere, uh, uh, early woodcut that shows the preacher actually wearing a Pope hat. Um, so um, in, in, in this version of the temple, they have him like in Papist robes. Um, but, uh, but obviously in, in, in the, into the 20th century, like we talked about, he would be wearing a sort of Protestant traditional clerical garb. But the- yeah, in, in, in the early days, in Utah and early 20th century, it's my understanding that they would vary the religious uh, uh, affiliation of the, of the preacher. Sometimes it would be a Catholic priest. Sometimes it would be a Methodist minister. Sometimes he'd wear a clerical collar. Sometimes not. So, so you know, the, the key elements is they're, they're sort of mocking the the services and they make a big deal of the fact that the preacher is doing this all for money, unlike the brethren today who don't get paid, right? Well, That's and, a, and, and doing it. And he's employed by Satan. Yeah. By Satan himself, yes. Right. Satan hires him to do the preaching. Right. Um, and I think today that Satan just says, oh, you want religion, do you? Um, and then he goes off on a, on a, on a tie, tirade. So it's sort of still veiled in there, but they don't have the, the buffoonish preacher character. I know when I was growing up, this was something my parents shared with me from time to time because I was kind of always wanting to go to other churches just out of curiosity. We lived down the street from a Catholic church, and so I was always aware when there was confessional because the parking lot was always full, and I was curious to know what was going on there. And my mom would always remind me that I will learn in the temple at some point that these are tools of the adversary and that they are on this earth to lead us astray and so on and so forth. I haven't really asked her what she thinks about the tools of Satan now that it's no longer in the temple, but I know the last time I asked her about any changes in the temple, she literally looked at me like I had, you know, donkey ears or something. Like, she didn't even know what I was talking about, but... That was a huge teaching tool growing up for me was that don't even think about stepping outside this church. It's all of the devil. Yeah, that, that was a belief that I grew up with, too. Of course, it's in the scriptures, and especially in the Book of Mormon. You know, there are saved two churches only, the Church of God and the Church of the Devil, and the talk of the great and abominable church. And here you'd see that literally played out in, in the temple. And I grew up thinking that, that other churches were sort of demonic um, in origin. So, so um it's surprising, we'll get to some other elements, how brazen sometimes the antagonism towards the rest of the world was in the temple. It's really toned down quite a bit. Okay, um, number four is the most recent um, change I'm aware of. Well, I, I don't think they stand up and sit down as often. I think there's been a change in two, the, 2009 or 2010. Um, but the, 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 the last significant change were to the, the um, washing and anointings. That happened in 2005, um, and um, Richard was talking about that earlier. So, as part of the te- this, the the temple ceremony, you know, you go into the locker room, you change out of your street clothes, and then you're going to be ceremonially washed into the into the temple. And like um, Richard was talking about in the in the old days, you would go, you would well, 
even when I was in the temple in, in you know, 92, um, we would um, disrobe from everything and put this shield on. And the shield was a big white poncho um, that, that had no side. So you'd be completely naked except for this shield. And then when I went through, um, they would reach underneath the shield and touch your body. And they would wash your, your forehead and your breast and your, um, your side and your thigh and they'd touch you. They didn't touch like your, your, your genitals or, or your, your nipples or anything like that. But the, the touching was kind of intrusive. So they would be reaching underneath that shield to touch, um, and I assume, ladies, they would touch the side of your breast when they, when they. Yeah. I only did it once. Um, and all I remember is the woman was very, very short. So I think she intended to hit me higher than she actually did. <laughs> so, yeah, I, think, I might have gotten more of a feel up than was meant. I think when they did mine, they touched sort of like the the upper part of my breast. Now, now, why this is so significant to me is this is an actual ceremony where they would be pronouncing words and, and doing a, a ceremony. Um, and they're nice words. That that they're is, not. Weird or creepy words. Oh yes, yeah. They're blessing you. They're they're blessing each part of your body that they t- that they wash and anoint to make sure that it functions properly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Your brain. Let me interrupt. Let, let me in, let me interrupt for just a moment to point out that when I got my endowment in 1952, the washing was really a washing. They stood there with a, uh, a little hose with water coming out of it, uh, which drained into the floor. Uh, you had really? to bring a towel with you in order to towel off because then you were to be anointed and then you had to be dried enough to put the garment on. But it was, it was, it was a, a serious washing and anointing. So- and also you, you, you were required to take the shield off. The shield hung was hanging on a hook with the garment that we put on later. And so I, I was standing there naked there for my washings and anointing. You were just completely naked, and you were standing while right. they sprayed you with a hose on your different body parts. Right. It, it was not spraying. It was it was just kind of dribbling enough <laughs> water to make you wet. Gets the okay. hose. <laughs> and uh, and I was standing, uh, seated then for the anointing. Okay. I hope it was warm. Totally Christian, by the way, right? This is totally Christian. So when when we say anointing, the first, the washing part is with water, and then the anointing part is with oil. But it's very similar ceremony. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, because this, to me, was the most um, jarring part of the temple ceremony. And and when I I did it, you, you would be in these little cubes with curtains, and you'd move from one to the other. And it was very disorienting to me, but... I remember staring down at the floor and seeing the drains in the floor. I, I still, that's burned into my mind, you know, that they were. Oh, that's they, they, awesome. So, I asked, because I, I sent Richard an email and asked him if the drains right, were still did, present. Yeah. And what did people think those were for? Oh, my God, like a morgue or something. There's drains in the floor. It was very much like a morgue or a bathroom. Yeah, it was, it was a tiled floor. It was like a bathroom. Yeah, yeah. I, it was. It was just. It was very. Well, of course, off. there are there are photographs of of the old Salt Lake Temple where you, there are bathtubs. Right. 
All right. So that's that's the change in the Washington anointing. And, and the reason it's so significant to me is when you have the restoration movement, and, and, and you, if you look at the, the, the amount of ink that's been spilled over baptism and how the sign of apostasy in the Catholic Church is that they went away from these holy ordinances that were prescribed by heaven and they, they took something from a, a, you know, a uh, full dip, a full dip to, to a, a sprinkle. <laughs> now what we haven't even talked about what the change is now. Now what you do is you put the garment on. Before you get washed and anointed, so you're not naked under the under your shield, so or just sitting out or standing out there like Richard. You was. still wear the shield, but you wear it over the top of the garment. And they actually say in, I don't know if they say olden times, but that's basically what it means. In olden times, you would have been washed and anointed, and I think now they just they just do your forehead, um, but they don't touch they don't touch your body. That's the change yeah, in 2005. They, uh, they say that it's symbolic, right? You have been symbolically washed and anointed. So, wow! So they went, and then the garment—they say you, your garment is now authorized. Right. So they went from the full washing back in Nauvoo days and Salt Lake days to no washing whatsoever. Correct. That's right. Wow! And didn't they used to pour oil over you too for the anointing? No, just little dabs of oil. I mean. It, the, in, like in, in the Nauvoo times. They, they might have, you know, because they, they always talk about looking for perfume and whiskey um, um, to, 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 to put in the tub. If you read, like, the journals of William Clayton, they, you know, they talk about that. But, but I, to me, this is extremely significant. Mm. Because if, 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 if you have a restoration, how can you move away from the ceremony? If, if the basis is authority and these, these authority to act in these particular ordinances and other religions have moved away from them and polluted them. Do, do you not have the exact same thing happening here? Well, in the ends, right. ends in, in um, 2001, they, there, they put the prophet Joseph Smith taught quote, ordinances instituted in the heavens before the foundation of the world in the priesthood for the salvation of men are not to be altered or changed. Exactly. Right. And this is exactly the change that the, the Catholic Church made. It was a matter of convenience to 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 sprinkle in symbol of the of the baptism. So it just uh, that whole rhetorical argument has been cut asunder. All right. Well, the Catholic Church can't do it because they don't have proper authority to do it. <laughs> we can change it because we we got the direct line. We got the real priesthood. This is you're absolutely right. That's true. Yep. Check and mate. All right. <laughs> Um, number three, um, and this one we talked about a few weeks ago. We had the, the, um, podcast on the Adam God, um, doctrine. And of course, the lecture at the veil, which was introduced by, um, Brigham Young. So it, it, it was a change that was both introduced and then taken away, um, shortly after his death. Um, the lecture at the veil, which is where the, uh, the congregants before they passed through the veil would be explained sort of the true nature of the Adam God doctrine. And the, the complete text is out there. You can Google it and, and, and read everything that it says about Adam and Adam being God. So what, what this really shows is this, is this doctrinal shift, um, probably away from the, the early doctrine from Nauvoo when it was first introduced to this Adam God and then, then moving away from it where the, the, the temple becomes very volatile. Once again, the temple should be the most 
the least hampered with. It hasn't gone through the hands of apostasy. It's only ever been in the hands of the prophets. Well, also, I was always taught that no untruth could be told in the temple. There you go. Well, then why are there locks on the the little locks? Isn't that an untruth? Thieving? Say that again. You were all breaking up. Sorry. Well, I remember being told that there are locks on the lockers. So when people are changing, that they can lock their things up. And that unfortunately, even though there are good people in the temple, things can go missing. Oh. So would that kind of the equivalent, though? Like, you'd think that nothing bad could ever happen in the temple. Yeah, but they've learned through sad experience that whenever people are given the opportunity to ruffle through other people's belongings in lockers, they will maybe do so. Yeah. So the devil is in the temple. I had a I had another uh, friend yeah. on, a, on a similar note, not the lockers, but was absolutely devastated when he went through the temple and found there were cash registers in there. Yes. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> uh, the, the first day I went through the temple, the first thing I saw walking in the front door after I turned in my recommend was the, the ring of a cash register. And my <laughs> thought immediately was, my word, it's uh, the money, cha- changes. money changers in the temple. <laughs> All right. But it it didn't bother me. I I continued on with the service. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number 2 in terms of significance of the changes. Um the oath of vengeance. Um the oath of vengeance was inserted into the temple following the death of Joseph Smith. Um, who does anybody have that in front of them to read the oath of vengeance? Yeah, I do. <clears throat> uh and this was published by the Salt Lake Tribune in a pamphlet called Mysteries of the Endowment House and the Oath of Vengeance of the Mormon Church in 1906, in which, uh, which, which reported what the um, testimony in the Smoot hearings. Right. And uh, here's the Law of Vengeance, which was removed, I think, in 1927, after the Mormon Church got uh, terrible t- publicity because of this coming out, you, Peter says to the congregation, You and each of you covenant and agree that you will pray and never cease to pray, Almighty God, to avenge blood of the prophets upon this nation, and that you will teach the same to your children to the third and fourth generation. All bow your heads and say yes. Wow. Yeah, um, and as, as you indicated, um, during the Reed Smoot hearings um, in, I think, 1904, 1905, that was read into the congressional record, um, and it was, um, you know, instrumental in pointing out that the church was still sort of provincial and backwards and looking out at the rest of the world with this with this fear. And, you, you know, you, you couple that with the preacher and— um, with the oaths and penalties and, and, and these other elements we're talking about. And this, this temple starts shaping up as this very sort of blood soaked, um, uh, fearful view of the, of the rest of the world. It, it, it almost, um, seems paranoid. Well, they did say they, the promise was that you will pray 
to, to God to avenge the blood of the prophets, and that you will teach your children to pray to God that he will avenge the blood of the prophets. It wasn't, they weren't promising to avenge the blood of the prophets themselves. I mean, it's well, still creepy. The wording, the wording that I just read, you know. Your, your wording says you promise to avenge? To pray for, no. yeah. It says that you will pray and never cease to pray, Almighty God, to avenge the blood of the prophets. It just right. makes you wonder with rhetoric like that, how much would it take for somebody to think, well, maybe God wants me to be that person that right. does that. Right. Yeah. Um, th- you know, today we still call, um, Porter Rockwell the avenging angel, right? Mm. But, but what's interesting to, that you, you will pray and never cease to pray to Almighty God to avenge the blood of the prophets upon this nation. <laughs> you know, there's a point when you can always have this heat sink, and religious people will always claim this. Oh, we were just kidding. This is just metaphor. Well, it's symbolic. It, yeah. Right. But but it's symbolic of, of what? I mean, it it, it 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 really does have a dim view of the rest of the world. And 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 really, it it, it was in retribution to the the deaths of Joseph and Hiram. And if you read the rhetoric. Leading up to um, to the Civil War, there's almost a glee from some of the, the, the members of the Twelve that the country is going to destroy itself, that there's going to be great bloodshed. And there's almost this joy, this bloodlust that, 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 that occurs at the time. And this is a good change, right? We're glad this is not in the temple anymore. Right. They just took it um, out completely. That's right. It's, it's, it's gone. Even though – well, of course – the reason that it's no longer there, if I may speak uh, as a Mormon, is because obviously this was not part of the endowment that was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Mm. Yes. Very because good point. How, how would Adam be able to pray to God <laughs> to avenge the blood of the prophets? Yeah, good point, yes. Well, when future Peter was, was, was visiting him, I'm sure... <laughs> I, yeah, you can't try to make too much sense of it. So apparently they used to do that around the time of the the prayer circle, just in case anyone's wondering when they did that. No, but uh, yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a really good point you make, Richard, because that, that's the defense the most rational Mormons will give. They'll, they'll say, well, the temple makes no sense. So you can't take it as anything but metaphor because you, 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 can't, you can't make sense of it. All right, number one. Um, the the penalties now now these have gone through a, a couple of changes, um, and th- this like we've said before are very um, masonic. Um, um, as you go through each of these um, oaths and covenants, they have a sign and they have a token and they have a penalty to to it uh, attached. What I think is very significant that most people don't understand is the sign is given in reference to the penalty. So although the penalty has been removed from the temple, the sign of the penalty is still in the temple. And and I don't think most Mormons understand this. But if you read through Masonic um literature, you you you'll you'll see it very clearly. Um yeah. Um So 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 who uh, the um the what's the the first penalty with the the throat being cut? The the first penalty is uh, that uh, you you will not you undertake not to reveal 
the first token of the Iranic priesthood with its accompanying name, sign, and penalty. Rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. And then you make the motion of slitting your throat. Now, that's the version that was used uh, from the mid-1930s on and the one until 1990. But before that, the wording was identical with the the penalty for the first uh, stage of the Masonic initiation. And this is the wording. I'll read it to you. We and each of us solemnly bind ourselves that we will not reveal any of the secrets of the first token of the Aaronic priesthood with its accompanying name, sign, or penalty. Should I do so, I agree that my throat may be cut from ear to ear and my tongue torn out by its roots. Good Lord. <laughs> now, what's interesting is that that really is worded as a penalty. It was called a penalty, and it was a penalty. It was saying what would happen to me if I if I violate the secret. The changes that was made in the 30s changed it from being a penalty entirely. It wasn't a penalty. All it said was, I won't tell the secret because I would rather have my life taken than tell the secret. Now, who's going to do the killing under the real penalty version? It's somebody who is imposing the penalty. Like, it's got to be somebody with authority. But the penalty after the 30s to the 1990s, who is going to be do the throat slitting? It's somebody trying to get you to tell what the secret is. Mm. It's not a penalty. Ah. Right, it's like you're getting tortured and you would... That's you would right. still not tell, right. even if they I slit your throat. Tell. Uh, right. But what I think but, is... But why, still, why is it still called a penalty? Well, that's what I was going to point out, that, that um, among faithful people, when I went through the, te- the, the, the temple, they still referred to them as the penalties. Because they would oh, yes. say, you're lucky that you didn't have to go through the ceremony with the penalties. Yeah. And don't some people call it the blood oath also? Um, the... Uh, that's not what Mormons call it. Yeah, so far as I know, the 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 wording and the penalties are are straight out of masonry, and um, we should point exactly. out that same wording. Most people don't take this seriously, but some people do. You know, Jack the Ripper famously um, is said to have killed his victims in Masonic fashion, and there are those who assert that the Lafferty's um, did their did their killings in in following the oaths of the the penalties of the temple. So there were two penalty, two, three penalties, three penalties, three with, penalties with signs. Then there were with the signs. Well, actually there were four signs. Uh, but, but the reason I think that there were only three with penalties is because there were only three stages in the York Rite of Masonry. Right. Which is what Joseph Smith knew. So, so to the point before, um, so you would, you would pledge that your, um, throat would be cut and all of the individuals in the temple would stick their thumb out with their right hand and hold their fingers straight up and they would drag their thumb across their throat in the motion of cutting the throat 
ending up with their hand in the square with the with thumb the thumb pointed, pointed out. out. So in the temple day, they say the sign is made by holding your arm, your hand in the square with your thumb pointed out, which is a reference to getting your throat cut by your thumb. And they've left that second part in. And, you know, not to be... I don't they still I, make the sign. They still make the sign. And I don't mean to be crude, but it is in the temple that they put their hand in front of them in cupping shape. The hand is put in front of you to cupping shape to catch your bowels as they come spilling out of your guts. What, before, you would have taken your thumb and... And that did a movement across across your, your chest. Well, you're talking about the you're talking about the second uh, right. penalty for the uh, first token of the Melchizedek priest. Correct. But now they I'm just, sorry. I'm sorry. This the second token of the Aaronic priest. Yeah, and uh, now they and just put their I'll, hand in cup and shape. Shall I read shape. you that one? Sure. Sure. Here is the. Uh, uh, make sure I've got the right. Well, yeah, it's the second second token of the. A Uranic priesthood. We and each of us do solemnly promise and bind ourselves never to reveal any of the secrets of this priesthood with its accompanying name, sign, grip, or penalty. Should we do so, we agree that our breasts may be torn open, our hearts and vitals torn out, and given to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Hmm. And then you place your right, right hand over your left breast, and pull it across your breast and drop it to your side. Oh, so you don't put it in cupping shape. Well, that this is the oh, third I'm sorry. one. Sorry, the sign. The, the sign has your left hand in cupping shape. Oh, and your. Um. Wait a minute. No, I'm sorry. It's the left left hand is at the square. The right hand is in cupping shape. That's and the when second you make sign. The penalty. Yeah. You put your right hand over your left breast, draw it across your breast, and then drop both hands to the side. And then the other one is the the one hand is the in cupping, third, the other hand's down. Yeah. Right. The third the third the third penalty is the first token of the Melchizedek priesthood, and it's the same thing. You and each of you to come you promise never release any of the da 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 da. Uh, should you do so, you agree that your body may cut asunder and all your bowels gush out. Right. And then you do the movement across your bowels, right? Right. So as a young temple initiate, after these, these things were in, I would sit and wonder why you, you know, you, you, you made the right arm to the square and then you moved it to your left arm and then you, and I would try to piece these things together in a hundred different ways. But the answer was very clear. If you read the history of the temple, it's very clear what the, the the hand symbols mean. So, so the church is sort of cagey and dishonest in saying, "Well, you just need to keep going to the temple, and then things will be revealed to you." We know exactly where the the these things came from, and we know exactly what they refer to. They refer to throat cutting and disembowelment and that sort of thing. So, Richard, when you went through the temple and they still had all this stuff in place, what did what did, what were your thoughts at that time? Uh, well, no, no, uh, maybe I've misled you. The, the versions of the penalties that I've read you were the pre-1930s. Oh, oh. When I went through, all the penalties were worded the same. It was rather, uh, rather than do so, that is to reveal, rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. Now, you would say that I, for every one, but you'd still do, yeah, do the mo- movement? You'd make the same move, movement, movements, but the wording wasn't as 
wasn't as specific. But I remember vividly on that day when I first my got my endowment, there was an old German in the uh, who was in our ward who was there to witness our wedding. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, well, what did you think about that? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, oh, it was wonderful, you know, I guess. And he said, oh, it used to be much worse. <laughs> oh, it was horrible. <laughs> and I wondered what he was talking about. And it was only years later that I realized he was talking about the penalties that he experienced in, in the 1920s. Well, they still sound fairly um, violent when you went through. I don't think I would have been comfortable with that, with that's the right. movement and the language. And that's that's why they've taken them out, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that was... People today, today deny that they ever existed. Yep. I know people who who went through the temple in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and you ask them about the temple, we never did that. That's exactly the reaction my mother gave me when she looked at me like I had donkey ears. <laughs> right. And I specifically remember her talking about these very serious oaths where you would rather die than reveal them. I remember them specifically, and they terrified me. And they're one of the main reasons why I never really wanted to go to the temple, because there were obviously some major things involved and promises that you would rather die but no one talked about them i was like i really don't want any part of this and now they she completely denies that that was ever a part of anything hmm. well i can actually vouch for that because the first time i went through the temple was in 1989 just before they changed mm -hmm. so i had to do that and my reaction to it was very much that i was being told to disembowel myself and slit my own throat. It was horrible. So you do not well, deny because it. it. <laughs> you, because they, they still called it a penalty. Hmm. And you weren't listening to the wording carefully enough. Oh, of course You just not. heard the word penalty, see? Yes. And so you did understand that your throat would be slit if you revealed it. Oh, absolutely. And keep in mind, at this point, I'm dressed up in this odd outfit. I'm looking across the aisle at my husband wearing this bizarre hat, and we're all sort of ritualistically disemboweling ourselves. It, it was not a time to really listen to fine points of rhetoric. <laughs> I, had an, I had the interesting experience. I had the opportunity about nine years ago, uh, long after I'd left the church, I had the a bit, uh, uh, opportunity to, to go through an endowment session in the modern version. Wait, how did and you get to do that? Well, it was arranged. Wow. And I remember, remember at the point where, where you made the signs, I was so tempted to go ahead and do the penalty the way I knew it. <laughs> but of course, it wasn't there anymore. Wow, so you sort of snuck in? Experience. Is that what you're saying? No, I had a <laughs> I had a recommend. <laughs> <laughs> Love you it. can't sneak into a Mormon temple. <laughs> All right, there's two. Th those are our top top um, ten. There's two honorable mentions that that, that I want to just throw out there quick. Um, the last one is you you um, the pe Pele Ale. Um, 
<laughs> yes. Um, one of you old timers <laughs> want to explain pay oh, layout nice. to us? <laughs> right. Yeah. I Shall I tackle that well. one? I, I can tell what I remember, which was that we had to stand up, um, hold our hands up high, and then drop them slowly while we said pay lay ale, which three supposedly times. meant three times, which supposedly right. meant, oh Lord, hear the words of my mouth. Which in right. in a damn this is this was in the the sign of the second token of the Melchizedek priesthood. That's right. Yeah. Right, and and now they just say the 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 words directly, but they literally said "pay lay ale." And you put your hands up, and as you're lowering them, you say it. So if yes, you can right. imagine, and then women with their veiled faces and people standing in a circle doing this ritual, it's yeah, that part was a little. I mean, when I went through, they weren't saying "pele ale." They were saying, um, "Hear oh, the words God, of hear my the words of my mouth." Of my mouth, now, but it was still it, what's odd. What's interesting is that is that this raising your hand above your head and lowering them three times is the Masonic sign of distress. Yes, which any fellow Mason sees, uh, made by a Mason, he he is to drop everything and come to the rescue of his fellow mason who is making this sign. If you're in distress, are you really going to have the presence of mind to do that three times? <laughs> in <laughs> well, hopes there's, there's a Yeah. There's a, there's a, uh, some reason to believe that Joseph Smith at Carthage Jail was standing at the window trying to make that sign. Um, there, there, and, and they shot him instead mm. because he knew that there were masons down below in the courtyard with the guns. And they Actually, didn't he, keep their oath. He, well, he probably wasn't making the sign because according to the Masons, you are to do one of two things, but not both. You're either to lower your hands three times saying nothing, or you're supposed to say, Oh, Lord, my God, is there no help for the widow's son? And... Smith was apparently starting to say, Oh, Lord, my God, is there no help for the widow's son? But was shot. Mm. Yeah, and, and but by best accounts, he got out, Oh, Lord, my God. And yeah. so it will, it'll forever be speculation as to whether or not the widow's son was going to come. <laughs> um, the- Quick question for you, John, or Richard. The Pele Ale around the altar, this the, in the prayer circle that it was given? Yeah. Well, it would have been get done once. Um, so it, w- what would happen is you would get each of the signs and tokens, all, all four of them, uh, sitting in the audience. Presented. And and then they, they form a circle around the, the altar, and they do them all again, this this small group. So so it would have been done twice, once by the entire congregation and once by the smaller group around the, the altar. Okay. Okay, the second honorable mention was that the word secrecy has been re- um, eliminated. Um, where was it, Richard? Where where was the word secrecy um, in the old uh, temple? It, in the up up until 1990s, uh, before the oaths were given and the signs and tokens and penalties, the officiator said, "We want to imp- and I'm I'm paraphrasing here. We want to impress upon you this that these oaths are bound up." with the severest um, obligations of secrecy in that you are never to reveal them 
outside of the temple, et cetera, et cetera. And they actually used the word secrecy. That's significant, of that, course, because they always that, deny that. Changed in, that was changed in 1990. The word secrecy doesn't occur anywhere in the 1990 version. They say instead that you are never to reveal. Da, 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 da. Well, so Mormons oh, say yeah, I it's think not it, secrecy. It's not secret. Right. So it used to say well, they will never reveal these secret um, signs and tokens. So... Having gone through this list, and 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 by the way, I you know I, I invite the the listeners to go out and verify these things for themselves. You can find um, the early cer- ceremonies largely from faithful sources. Um, there's good reason why Mormons don't like talking about the temple. I mean, I mean, let's 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 be clear. I, I I'll give you the example. When I was a small child, we were down at Temple Square for the lights to see at Christmas, and there was a, a crazy crazy man walking out around the temple as they as they do and this man was saying you'll go in the temple and they will strip you naked and they will rub you with oil um and and to me i I just brushed it off as a a nine-year-old does but that those words from that crazed um you know guy on the streets were just running through my head when they had me take off my clothes and they anointed me with oil um so you know, that I, crazy man was probably Brian David Mitchell, by the way. Well, I'm I'm a lot older than that. <laughs> David Mitchell would have been in high school when when I was out hey, there. Hey, you, know. you know, they I have the temp the temple hymn here from the children's songbook. You know, um, I love to see the temple. Um, going there someday to feel the Holy Spirit to listen and to pray for the temple is a house of God, a place of lo- love and beauty. I'll prepare myself while I am young. This is my sacred duty. Now, I will give the church that the temples are very beautiful, the finest mahogany and adornment and gilding from around the world. And the temple ceremony is getting more and more so. But can you imagine, dear listener, going through the temple in 1918 and having the the preacher mocking you and the blood oaths and the, the penalties and the naked washing and and it just the 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 mormonism that people run into in the chapels and what happens in the temple are so disjointed that that it it sends most people go to the temple into into a sort of a funk for at least a few weeks but anyway those are the top 10 changes to the temple um well one you haven't one one you haven't mentioned and that is that there are 10 or 20 times as many now as there were 50, 60 years ago. Mm. You mean it, it, the rate of changing has increased or are we just? No, no, the number of, the number of temples. Oh. When I went through for my endowment, I think there were 12 temples in the entire world. What? Now there's like a hundred and what, hundred and forty? Yeah, if you count the Mick temples. Yeah, when when I when I got my baptism at eight, that would have been like around nineteen seventy nine or so. Um, I was given this book of remembrance that had all the temples on on the cover, all fourteen or fifteen of them. And yeah, now we have uh, we have um very uh, uh, very many. Um, now a lot of them are not open all the time. Um, a lot of the smaller temples will open by appointment only. 
Um, but but they are. They literally dot the dot the world with with temples. I've got a question for you, and it kind of reminded me or made me remember John when you recited the song to go and pray there someday. Now, isn't aren't you not allowed to pray in the temple? You can pray in the temple. It's just that there's not very many places that that you can do it. I mean, like, but you don't have time to do it, really. You don't have a quiet place that you can just meditate for, you know, a half hour, an hour. So after you pass through the veil, you'll go into the, 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 um, the celestial, celestial room, room. Which, which looks like a something from the Palace of Versailles. Um, and you know, you'll, you'll, you'll sit there and if you're in one of the busier temples, there is another group coming 10 or 20 minutes later. So a lot of people will sit down. They will whisper to each other. If you whisper too loudly, the matrons who guard the celestial kingdom will come up and shush you. Um, and a lot of people will bow their head and silently pray. You'll see that's very common. But you usually only have a maximum of 10 minutes in yeah, the, there. The, the matrons will famously uh, move you along if you if you linger too long in there um, because so the next group's coming in. you have like a family prayer, like get down on your knees no. with your no, family. Uh, and no, they won't prayer. let you kneel. No, yeah, they'll stop you from kneeling. Why? Because it's a celestial room. You don't kneel in the celestial room. I, I don't. You don't kneel God in the celestial room. You don't have to because he's right there and you're you're in his presence and you don't have to kneel because you're one of him, right? You're lounging on his couch in bed? Yeah, you're being fed grapes. Nice. <laughs> Didn't they used to eat raisins? <laughs> I've no. this great thing that what? they used to eat raisins. In the it celestial like room? This- I don't think it was a celestial room. I think it was when they were eating the fruit off the tree of life. <laughs> oh, oh that's awesome. Raisins. That is cool. Wow. So, so the, Isn't that awesome? The, yeah. the ceremony now lasts about, uh, as, as it sits right now, lasts about two and a half hours from start to finish. And I, I believe in the 60s, it was it was pushing four hours. Um, so, you know. Um, it's it get, could still be shorter. shortened. I'm just saying you might have needed sustenance in the middle <laughs> of the old one raisin probably wouldn't help. You needed some blood sugar um, research. Yeah. This days it would be Cheerios. Yeah. Ooh, lucky charms. <laughs> you know, we do, we do, you go through the temple for yourself the first time and then you do it um, for the, the deceased. Um, you know, we, in a recent podcast, we talked about baptisms for the dead. Most people going through temple are doing endowments for the dead. Oh yeah. That's something that the other, um, churches don't know about really is that they're also having their endowments. Yeah. They're, they're getting the blood oaths for the dead too. Um, but so, but, but what, what's, sorry, John, sorry. Anyway, anybody have any, uh, <laughs> anybody have any last minute, uh, any, any, any follow up thoughts? No, but I wish well, I had I some wanna, raisins. I wanted to point out that when you do go through this and you're in shock because of the strangeness of it all, you're also told the only place you can talk about this is in the temple. Yes. So you don't have any chance to sort of, you know, decompress or try and figure out what it is because you can't chat about this. You, 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 yeah, you can't, you don't have time to chat about it in the temple and you have to do it in whispers, which is sort of awkward. Yes, Megan, that's an excellent point because from the time you enter the doors to the temple, you are ushered on from place to place. There's not really a place to to sit down and talk with anybody, at least not for most patrons. So yeah, you're told you can only talk about it in the temple, but there's never a chance given to talk about it in the temple. 
just very briefly in whispers. That seems really wrong. Well, there's a there's a inscription, as I remember, over the Idaho Falls Temple, where I got my uh, endowment, which is a quotation from the book of Habakkuk, saying, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Hmm. <laughs> he, he would like us to just be seen and not heard. <laughs> we are his children. Now, now um, for a, a future Mormon expression podcast or something, um, we probably will do it in film. Um, I, I would like to go through and explain what everything means in the temple, because I, I think it is a sort of travesty that Mormons are not told. You know, we we obviously went through some of it in dealing with the the, the changes, but we didn't go through all the stuff that, that hasn't been changed um, or is an insignificant change. And I just think the, the real shame of the temple is that most people going through are completely ignorant of its significance and, and why they're doing things. They just they just do things and no one tells them why. Well, there, there is a, tr- a tremendous amount of information available. For example, the tanners have published scripts of the, of the 1930s ceremony, the 1984 ceremony, and the 1990 changes. It's called Evolution of the Mormon Temple Ceremony 1842 to 1990. And you can buy that from Utah Lighthouse Ministry in Salt Lake for, uh, well, about five dollars postage. The website for them to order it is utlm.org. That's utahlighthouseministry.org. Uh, you can also see it online on my website. At Packham, Packham, P-A-C-K-H-A-M dot N as in Nephi, four in the four gospels, M as in Moroni dot org. And you'll also find this there, the scripts of all these versions, the 2005 changes. There's also an article comparing original Masonic rituals with the uh, endowment as Joseph Smith introduced it. And there's a, a article there comparing the ancient temple in Jerusalem with modern temples and uh, some other stuff of interest. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great site. And we'll put a link up um, from our website um, over to, to, to your site. Richard. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. Well, Megan, Richard, Amy, um, thanks again for appearing on this. I think um, I, I know once again that many LDS people will find this um, quite offensive that we're talking about it, but I, I think um, it's of historical interest and it's uh, uh, valuable for people to understand. Definitely. All right. Well, as always, the uh, discussion continues. This um, podcast was produced by Amy and was... Um, directed and hosted by me, and it will be edited by Richard. Mormon Expression is a product of the Whitefields Educational Foundation and is made possible through your generous support and contribution. Thanks, everybody. And don't forget about the essay contest and the, um, and the art for the Cafe Press store for Mormon Expression. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Good night, everyone. Oh, as we're on a
eyes are 